several years ago, a TV show premiered on the Discovery Channel called Storm Chasers. And it follows and chronicles the life of individuals for scientific reasons, for artistic reasons, and just for adrenaline reasons who chase these storms around the country. And they drive around in these vehicles that look like you mixed a manly truck with a tank. And they, they, they chase these storms around and they catch incredible pictures. Um, and this is their busiest season right now across the country, especially in that area known as Tornado Alley. They're out there chasing storms. They, they bring back these amazing photography moments um, catching these, these moments with nature. This is one of my favorite pictures right here. I mean, just, just unreal. Like I, I didn't take, I took one science class in college. I did my best to minimize that stuff. So I don't understand how this happens, but it's amazing. And, and I had a chance a couple years ago when I lived in Phoenix to cross paths with a guy through some mutual friends whose name was Michael Binsky. And he, especially in the Southwest, chases storms. And in July of 2011, I actually wasn't in the country when this happened, but a, a storm came into Phoenix. And Mike got up on, a, on a, a parking garage in central Phoenix, and he captured this time lapse right here as a giant storm rolled in and brought with it a wall of dust over a mile high. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. And so if you are wondering, that's also the moment, as Jamie indicated, that you're grateful you live in Prescott and not in Phoenix. <laughs> but as I, was, as I was thinking about Mike and one of his photos stumbled through my social media feed this week, I, I was reminded of, of something we're studying in the book of Ecclesiastes this summer. And we've been talking about these phrases that appear over and over and over again. One of those phrases is that meaningless, meaningless, life is meaningless. That phrase appears like 35, 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week, Pastor Mark told us about how this phrase, under the sun, appears about 30 times. There's another phrase that I stumbled into this week as I was studying Ecclesiastes, and it's this phrase, a chasing after the wind. And while these storm chasers bring back scientific discoveries and um, Instagram-worthy pictures, for many of us, we're chasing after the storm or the wind ourselves. And we're not bringing back things nearly as valuable. Solomon warns the people who read his book that chasing after the wind is a fruitless endeavor. And today, as we continue our study in Ecclesiastes, I, I want us to lean into his message because I think it's timeless. If you came in and got a bulletin today, and that bulletin is a handout, I'd encourage you to pull it out and take notes today because the simple idea I'm hoping to drive home today is this, that we are to stop chasing the wind and we are invited to start prioritizing our relationships. If you don't hear anything else today, I want to encourage you to stop chasing the wind and start prioritizing relationships. And today we're going to talk about what the wind means and what it looks like to prioritize relationships. And to do so, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up and you'll turn to the middle and hit Psalms or Proverbs as I just did. And then turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you have a digital Bible, just scroll down to the middle of the Old Testament section. If you forgot your Bible, we'll have the verses on the screen. But before I went any further, I wanted to thank Tom Garishay and Mark Benedom, who spoke here while I was on vacation the last couple of weeks. Yeah, they did a fantastic job. Can you give them a round of applause? And, uh, you know, Solomon reminds us that there is a value to rest. 
We live in a culture that doesn't value rest. And so for me, I'm trying to model for you what I hope you do, which is not just work all the time. And so uh, I'm really grateful for them. I also want to mention that Tim Parker's here today from Haiti. He recently has gone there to begin some missionary endeavors. And so thanks for being here today, Tim. Glad to have you back. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're going to hear four urgent messages for our over-informed, hyper-competitive, socially isolated, lonely world. You say, Scott, that's the longest header you've ever had here. I know because I want to remind you who you are. You are a part of an over-informed, hyper-competitive, socially isolated, lonely world. A world that isn't that different from the world of Ecclesiastes. And this message written over 2,000 years ago is for us also. So beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. Solomon says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. There's that phrase again. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And he says, And I thought the dead, who are already dead, are more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Solomon's first message to us is that the world is broken. And you may be here today as somebody who doesn't believe that the Bible is the word of God or that Jesus is real. Maybe those things we just sang, this I believe, they're not things you believe. But regardless of where you sit on the faith spectrum, you can acknowledge the truth of this, that the world is broken. And we're reminded of that day after day after day as children line up and flee the school that is supposed to be the safe haven for them, as families are torn apart by violence and as lives are wrecked by drugs that were intended to minimize the pain, not introduce a life of pain. And, and what's hard about living in our world is that, that Solomon looks out from his, 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 his balcony in his palace and he sees the brokenness and the impression and the injustice in his world, but he had nothing on us because he only had awareness of a limited amount of the brokenness in this world. And we have a limitless awareness. Something happens in our world today that's terrible. Before this sermon is done, your phone is going to buzz. And you're going to get an alert about it. You'll watch a live stream of it. And it, it seems to me that, that we are as aware of the brokenness in our world as we ever have been before. And some of the habits that we engage in only make it worse. You see, I think there's a direct relationship between the number of hours you watch cable news and your level of despair about the world. I think they're directly connected. And there are studies that are actually indicating this. That the longer and longer you watch cable news, the more and more you will be convinced that the world is going down, down, down. And that's because that, that's how they keep you watching. Like if they told you, hey, we're going to go to a commercial, but when we come back, we're going to tell you about Bob, who just retired from his job for 40 years and they gave him a Volvo. So we'll see you after the break. Next. <laughs> but if they told you, hey, when we come back from the break, we're going to tell you about this threat to your kids, to your mom, and to you. And it's coming through that food that you love that you just took a bite of. We'll be right back. You're not changing the channel. 
you're going to spit it out in this kitchen sink. And then that's how they keep you watching. And so some people say to me, Scott, I, I think our world is as bad as it's ever been. And here's the question I often reply with. What if the world isn't worse? What if we're just more aware? What if the world is not more broken than it was in the day of Solomon? Maybe we're just more aware of the brokenness than ever before. You see, more than he says meaningless, and more than he says under the sun, and even more than he says chasing after the wind, Solomon uses a word in his book, and it's the word ra'ah. It's a verb, and it means to see or to look at. And it appears 47 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's the word that we see right there in verse 1 as the chapter begins, and he says... And again, I saw all the oppressions that are under the sun. See, see, what you believe about the world is a reflection of what you're seeing and what you're looking at. And you may not have come to terms with the brokenness of the world because you haven't been willing to look at it. Some of us just plug our ears when we hear bad news. We avoid it. We like to sanitize the world. And this is why I think Ecclesiastes has been such a beacon of love in the middle of the Bible. You might say, people love this book? Absolutely. Often people who don't really love the Bible love Ecclesiastes. I read this week lines from Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, Ernest Hemingway, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, who describe Ecclesiastes as their favorite book in the Bible. Say, why is that, Scott? Because it's honest. Because it's raw. Because it doesn't resolve well, like our lives. It's not a nice, neat sitcom. It's also often unlike Christian art. I'll be honest, and I'm, I may get some negative response to this, but I'm not a big fan of Christian movies. Because they're not always honest movies. And if you know anybody in the film business, they will tell you that Christian movies are not widely respected. It's not an issue of quality, because the quality has gone up. It's an issue of content. They don't reflect the true state of the world. They resolve too easy. And I believe Ecclesiastes is an incredible gift from God in the middle of the Bible because it models for us what true art should do. It should tell the truth about the world and it should lead you to provoke you to wonder and reflect about your place in it and your role in it. So I'm not here to bag on Christian movies or music or books or art or any of that. I'm just here to tell you that the world is broken and we go the wrong direction when we try to sanitize and anesthetize ourselves to that. And Solomon begins this chapter saying, hey, I'm going to push upon you the brokenness of the world and I don't want you to avoid that. I don't want you to lessen that. I want you to look at that and deal with that. And he continues in verse 4. He says, then I saw all toil and all skill in work I saw that all toil and all skill comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind, like we talked about earlier. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What a lovely picture for a Sunday morning. Better is a handful of quietness, Solomon says, 
than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. It's not just that the world is broken. He also tells us that we are broken. That the problem of the world is not that all of those people out there are broken. The problem is that I am just as broken. And Solomon says some pretty strong things here. He says that all work, all labor is motivated by two things. Greed and envy. He says this is the motivation of all things. I love this little picture right here. This girl has a sign. It says, I'm here. You're not. In front of a waterfall. Feels like a summary of social media some days. I'm here. You're not. But like this picture anyway. And, and he challenges us to say, what is driving what we do? Why are you doing what you do? And he's saying that, that all of the work and toil and labor that we are giving our lives to he says it's all motivated by two things. Our envy of what other people have and our greed to get what we don't yet have. Now, he may be playing some hyperbole here, but I think he's trying to teach us an important lesson that comparison is a game where there are no winners. And who likes to play a game they can't win? And he's saying, hey, if you want to play a game where there are no winners, then play the comparison game. Because you either feel less than other people, and that's not good, or you feel better than other people, which is also not good. And so many of us, our daily activity is we pull out our phone and we open up these devices that tell us we'll be more connected if we use them, and so we scroll and we scroll and we scroll and we go, I'm a loser and I'm a loser. Man, I'm really a loser. My wife's a loser. My kids are losers. Hey, I went there on vacation, but it doesn't look that good. You know, like how do they pull that off? And, and our brokenness is there in high definition in thousands and thousands of pixels. And I even read, there's even scientific research now that's showing that teens who are using social media they're being able to track and connect, not just correlate, but causation between social media use and depression. Our life has never been better than ever before. And yet our suicide rates are going higher than ever before. This is why Andy Stanley so powerfully says, you cannot compete or compare your way to peace. Solomon says, you've been driving yourself to do all this work through envy and greed, but I can promise you the one destination that will not take you to, peace. You will always need just a little bit more or a little bit more than they have, whoever they is. And he talks about this in the reality of the world that he's living in, the reality of the, the ancient world that was a very patriarchal culture. 
In verses 7 and 8, he says, I saw the vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. In that world, women couldn't inherit property. And so you did your work to pass on a legacy to your family. He says, but there's this man who has no other, either son or brother. There's no one that's going to get what he has worked so hard for, and he can't take it with him. And he says, yet there's no end to his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. He never stops working, and he never actually stops to enjoy it. And he never asks, why am I toiling and depriving myself? Solomon says, this is a vanity and an unhappy business. This is what greed and envy do. You kill yourself in your work. You never stop to enjoy it. And you just compare it to other people, which doesn't fuel peace, but it fuels dissatisfaction. And I just want to challenge you this morning, whatever your work is, whether you're getting paid for it in a career or you have some work that you get up and do every day, I want you to think about some questions. The first question is this, what's driving me here? When it comes to the work of your life, whatever that work is, you need to ask the question, what's driving me? What's my motivation? What is it that's pushing me to do this? Second question you need to ask is, what am I trying to prove? What is it that you're, you're out there for? What are you trying to prove in all of that hard work? And then maybe the most uncomfortable question of all, to whom am I trying to prove it? It's possible that some of us are working so hard to prove something to somebody who's no longer alive. You can't get their satisfaction. They're not still here. Maybe you're trying to prove something to somebody that you don't actually really like. That's the twisted way our brains work sometimes. I don't like you, but I want your approval. And none of us are immune from this. Many of you know that uh, on the side, when I'm not doing pastoring, I'm a writer. And in the writing world, we have these great things called vanity metrics. We've even put the word into the title. The number of page views your article gets, the number of email subscribers that you have, the number of books that you've written, the people who endorse your work. And the place where I've struggled with greed and envy the most is in my work as a writer. Because I compare my struggles to somebody else's successes. I compare where I am at my age with their, where they were at their age. I compare what they're getting to do with what I'm getting to do. And somewhere along the way, I told myself I would get to a certain point where this would go away. I hit a certain number, and it would be done. Just last year, I hit a certain milestone. And guess what? It didn't fill the hole. I had something that happened to me a couple years ago that I never thought would happen. It was like a dream, and I got there. And I ask the same question you ask. Is that it? See, I've learned the hard way that contentment isn't about an amount. It's about a posture of acceptance. This is what Solomon is trying to do through Ecclesiastes. He is not trying to be a bummer and bum you out. He is trying to disabuse you and he's trying to disabuse me of the idea that you will get to an amount and be content. You won't. 
you will always need just a little bit more. And he's saying contentment will only come when you recognize that what will fill that place in your hole is not an amount, but something you accept and receive from God. This is why he's talking about in this book, Under the Sun, that under the sun in this world, under the sun in the sky, you will never find a thing that permanently satisfies your soul. You won't find a house big enough. You won't find a dollar amount big enough. You won't find a number of followers big enough or an award big enough. Even your spouse and your kids can't fill that hole. And some of us try to do that. And what we do is we crush those people with the weight of expectations that can only be met by God. This is why last week Pastor Mark said this powerful statement. He said, Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes to drive us to despair, but to drive us to God. He's trying to disturb us and unsettle us and frustrate us so that we will stop looking for the right thing in the wrong place. And we'll start looking for it in the place that it can only be found. And some of you, the restlessness that you feel is a God, if not caused thing, a God used thing. That he's trying to unsettle you so you will start looking in the right place. And so that you'll start looking not just on your own. That's where he goes next. In verse 9, he says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. One of the most famous verses in Ecclesiastes. The third lesson Solomon has for us, the third urgent message, is the right relationships make life better. The right relationships make life better. My team gave me a good feedback this week. Said my initial big idea was relationships make life better. They go, no, Scott, sometimes the wrong relationships make life worse. And I'm hearing nods in the room. Hopefully it's not, not the person sitting next to you. They made, they made your life worse. But, but the right relationships make life better. And that's what we know is that, that, that when we have a community of people around us, as the old Swedish saying goes, the joys are double joys and the sorrows are half sorrows. People make the highs higher and the lows easier to navigate. And to those who don't believe this, because there are a significant number of you who don't believe that the right relationships make life better, this is what Solomon says. He says that there is better profit in your work when there's two of you, not one. That's because you're not good at everything. You don't have every strength. You have weaknesses. And it's best when your strengths and their strengths match your weaknesses and their weaknesses. You get better profit in your work. He says, you have help in difficulty. That, story, that man who fell down and needed somebody to call on, the worst moment to need and build a friendship is when you're in difficulty. Like, hey, will you be my friend and help me? And, and go out of your way and sacrifice for me? I mean, we've not built anything to prepare for this. But would you do it now? This is why I tell people, relationships are like retirement accounts. Invest in them when you don't need them so that they are there when you do. He says, 
Relationships give us comfort while we're in need. And you might read that phrase about two keeping warm in a romantic sense. He's speaking much more practically. In a world that didn't have central heating, in a world that didn't have uh, you know, built-in gas fireplaces that were ready to go at the punch of a button, in a world where it was natural and normal to be out in the elements and exposed, they needed people to keep warm. And then he says it gives us protection in times of danger. And he says, these things all make life better. And this is coming from someone who had so much wealth, so much power, he might have been convinced that he didn't need people. And as Mark said last week, he's at the end of his life. He's looking back at all he achieved. And what he's saying is, I wish I would have prioritized people. He's teaching us some math here, that two is greater than one, And three is even greater than two. And he's teaching us that we shouldn't just pursue success in our work and our wealth, but in our relationships. This is one of the hard parts sometimes of moving or coming out of a season where you put your head down on your job is that you think that you are doing the right thing and pursuing success, but you wake up and you're alone. You wake up and you're, you're lonely. Some of us were actually discipled and conditioned by our culture to think that was the way you did things. Some of you grew up with the Lone Ranger, you know, who didn't have anybody. And don't tell me he had Tonto. Because <laughs> if you tell me he had Tonto, then you're a person who needs friendships because you're trying to use Tonto as an excuse. And, and something's happened generationally where I think the idea of a, a crew or a posse or a tribe has gotten better. I just think we're now getting bad pictures of who those tribes should be. Like here, we've gone from Lone Ranger to these yahoos, you know? And I'm not sure you're better off. You know, we've gone from this lady to these ladies. I'm not sure we're better off. You don't know how hard it is to find a church-appropriate picture of the Kardashians. I spent hours this week <laughs> working on this. It's not easy work. <laughs> but all jokes aside, I want to remind you that people need people. And too many of us have given our lives to what we thought mattered. We spent years working and serving with our head down. No one wakes up that I've met and goes, man, I want to be lonely one day. I want to have no friends. I want to have nobody that really sees me and knows me. But on a daily basis, I talk to people who are profoundly lonely. And they have no idea how they got there. And the challenge is, is it, if it's not a priority for you, if you don't make it significantly important, if you don't sacrifice things for those relationships, they won't be there. They slide away and they leak and they get neglected and they're incredibly fragile and incredibly important. And this is why Solomon tells us, stop chasing the wind and start prioritizing relationships. No amount of money, no amount of power, 
He's going to deal with the feeling that comes from loneliness and isolation. And then he concludes this way. He says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he'd been born poor. Solomon says, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that particular youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. He's trying to teach us that empty victories are actually defeats. You can think you won and still lose. And he does this by telling the story of this young boy who experiences this Hollywood-type journey. He starts out in prison, and he ends up on the throne. I mean, all of us would want that ending. We might like to skip over the beginning, but we would love to be where the ending is. We would love to have that kind of journey. But what he says is there's no end of the people that he rules, and when he's gone, people are kind of happy. No one rejoices in his life. No one remembers his life. It's fleeting. Vanity. A chasing after the wind. And and this is a little bit like our world today. My generation and the ones that are following me, for so many of us, our one dream in life is to be famous. And we think that we're just one viral post away. I mean, a few of us want to be like this lady right here. Chewbacca lady. If you know the story, this lady goes to uh, Kohl's, buys a Chewbacca mask that, that makes noise when she opens her mouth. She opens up her phone on Facebook and records a video of her talking. She has an amazing laugh. I will give her that. And as somebody who has an amazing laugh, I envy hers. But she laughs, and 60 million people see it. She's invited on the Today Show. She gets a book deal. And we're like, man, I want to be her. I want to be that. Some of you are rolling your eyes. Audibly, some of you are rolling your eyes. Because you know how fleeting that is. 15 minutes of fame isn't very long. And yet, when you're not sure your life matters, when you feel isolated and alone, and when you're alive in a time in which the people with the highest value are the ones who have the most attention, the greatest desire becomes this kind of victory. And the lady who's a Chewbacca lady, she's actually an amazing lady. I mean, she's a, she's a worship leader. She's got an amazing story. But it it reminded me of of another phrase we're going to hear later in Ecclesiastes where Solomon says, better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. This message is not going to go viral, I promise you. But it's one we all need to hear. 
Because unless we remember this, we will spend our lives chasing the wind. And someday, it may not be when you die, maybe before, you'll wake up and have a sobering moment. And you realize, I have been giving my life to stuff that doesn't matter. The world is broken. I am broken, and this stuff isn't filling the hole. Maybe it's time for me to look in a different place. And this is why Solomon says, stop chasing the wind. Start prioritizing relationships, including your relationship that is the most important of all, the one with God. So let me give you some next steps as you process what we talked about today. And the first one is this. I want to encourage you to beware of the threats to your relationships. That should be a plural there. Beware of the threats to your relationships. One of the things I've learned in my very short life is the most important things in life you will experience the most opposition to. The more important, the harder it will be to keep it a priority. And so some of these are threats to your relationships. Your sense of dissatisfaction, because that's the source of all modern marketing today, is sowing dissatisfaction so they can then sell you a product. Greed and envy, self-absorption, and just good old plain fear. Because as much as we want to be known and be seen, (laughs) it's scary to be known and seen. And for some of us, we've been hurt and wounded in the past. And we're afraid of being hurt and wounded again. Second next step I'd encourage you to take is to focus on the benefits of relationships rather than the risks. I know some of you right now in this message about relationships are saying, Scott, this is great that you described this. It's great what Solomon says, but you don't know the risks of building relationships. You don't know the risks that I did and the price that I paid. And there are some of you in this room today who are lonely and isolated by choice because you don't want to be hurt again. And some of your hurt came in the context of marriage or family. For some of you, it came in the context of church. And if you focus on the, on the risks, you'll never move to those relationships. And I want to tell you that the risk is actually worse than you think it is but it's a different kind of risk. Vivek Murthy, who used to be the Surgeon General of the United States, said the most prevalent issue in our country is not cancer or heart disease or obesity, it's isolation. Richard Schwartz, a psychiatrist from Cambridge, says studies show that those who are more socially isolated were more likely to die during a given period than their socially connected neighbors, even after you corrected for age, gender, and lifestyle choices, like exercising and eating right. Friends, relationships is not an optional thing to your life. It is a matter of life and death. And crisis is coming in your life. We discussed this earlier this spring. You're either going into one, you're in one today, or you're heading into one. And you will not make it without relationships. So yes, it's important to weigh the risks and the benefits but I have to tell you, 
The benefits far outweigh the risks. This is why I'd encourage you to go out and, and sign up for a community group or, or sign up to host one. I can't promise you that you're going to meet your best friend in your community group. I can't promise you that one of those people in that group isn't going to hurt you one day because I bear the scars I've gotten in church. But I'm still here to tell you the benefits outweigh the risks. The greatest danger, as one person said, of community is not being hurt. It's a shipwreck that you go through alone. Number three, intentionally build relationships where you are today. There will come no perfect season for you to work on your relationships. There will come no perfect time when your schedule magically opens and you have abundances of free time and dollars. If you keep waiting for the schedule to slow down, you're going to be waiting for a long time. And what you're saying is the schedule is more important than your relationships. So choose right here, right now, to do what you have, what you, what you can with what you have, where you are, in your relationship with people, and most importantly, in your relationship with God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.